Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifesightNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today we're going to talk about a very important Canadian issue. And for those of you who aren't Canadian, this issue is still very relevant because the conversion therapy ban that I want to discuss today, uh, we have versions of this being passed all over the place. So you've got a version of this up in the United Kingdom, a version of this just passed in France. Conversion therapy bans are the LGBT movement's next move. Essentially, these conversion therapy bans define what so-called conversion therapy is very broadly, uh, basically to criminalize all dissent, uh, in many cases, to criminalize helping those with unwanted same-sex attraction. And that is the case here in Canada, where we saw earlier this year that Bill C-6, which was originally Bill C-4, Bill C-4 um, was null and void after Justin Trudeau called an election in order to get a majority government, which he did not succeed in doing. He got a minority government. He brought back the conversion therapy ban as Bill C-6. Bill C-6 passed unanimously uh, by a motion put forward by the Conservative Party under the leadership of Aaron O'Toole, who wanted to show that he was as pro-LGBT as Justin Trudeau. Uh, that, of course, caused a lot of dissatisfaction among Conservative MPs. Uh, quite a few of them simply didn't know what was going on. Others didn't know what to do when this was suddenly put forward. The, the Liberals didn't know that the Conservatives were planning this. And this contributed to the dissatisfaction that resulted, <clears throat> excuse me, in the loss of, of Aaron O'Toole's leadership. So to discuss what Canadians can do now that the conversion therapy ban is law, uh, I invited Jojo Ruba of Free to Care and Faith Beyond Belief back on the show. Those of you who follow the show regularly uh, will recognize his name because we've had Jojo on to talk about this bill uh, before now. We also had his uh, colleague at Free to Care, Colette Akama, come on. Both of them testified before the parliamentary committee on this piece of legislation. And so now that it's law, a lot of people are asking, what can we do? Uh, what, what if I want help? Where would I go to get help? Uh, as a pastor, what can I do? Um, what's inside the boundaries of the law, etc.? So we asked Jojo. <clears throat> to come back on the show and to kind of give us some guidance on what the state of affairs is in Canada now and what we can do about it. This is that conversation. Well, Jojo, the last time uh, you were on the podcast, and you've been on a couple of times now, we were discussing the dangers of, of Bill C-6, which turned into Bill C-4 and then passed unanimously in the House of Commons. And you had testified on this bill uh, before the committee. What was your reaction to the passage of the bill? Well, it was interesting is I was actually preparing a press release about Bill C-4 when I saw and heard that the bill was passed unanimously in the House. And I was sort of stunned because that meant all the Democratic levers where people could come and present, people could come and show the, the problems of the bill or how to improve it were completely bypassed. And it, it took a while for me to, to sort of dig about, dig around to see what happened, talk to people, talk to MPs, talk to politicians and their staffers to find out what's going on. And it, it turned out there were several arguments being made. Uh, so the, it was the Conservative caucus, as we know, that decided to pass this bill unanimously. One of the MPs who actually brought that in was is someone who I thought was on our side and was very disappointed otherwise that he would support this. And many of the Conservative MPs, you could see, were clapping and ecstatic about this because they were very much uh, – 
wanting to avoid the controversy and they didn't want to look anti-LGBT. Uh, but in doing so, they passed a, a bill that was that was different from Bill C-6, different enough that it should have been uh, uh, viewed and studied uh, again as a new bill. But the argument that some of the conservative leadership was at the time was giving was that the bill itself, uh, what, we had to bring it, they had to bring it to the same point that Bill C-6 was which was passed through parliament uh, because it was close enough. But again, you know, three months uh, before that, or even a month before that, during the election, the justice minister, uh, Lametti, uh, said that they could not pass a bill that would prevent consenting adults such as myself from talking to whoever they want to about sexuality and gender, as long as that those conversations, those counseling conversations were free. And they made the case that this would be very much uh, difficult to pass it uh, without any kind of constitutional challenge. In fact, uh, one of our friends, Don Hutchinson, who used to be the uh, league chief legal expert for the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, so he's a trained lawyer, observed something very important, wrote an article about it. He said that the bill itself, like any justice bill, needed a what's called an, a charter statement to assess it. So this charter statement is written by the Justice Department to, to look at how a new criminal bill particularly will impact the rights, the charter rights of Canadians. This charter statement was not produced before Parliament could pass the bill. It, so the MPs had no idea or had no uh, desire to look at this, uh, the impact this would have. And this this charter statement requirement, Jonathan, is something that the Liberal government itself passed as a law in 2017, 2018, something like that. So this is required by law for them to do. And, and this charter statement was not released until the bill passed uh, the House and the Senate, where the Conservatives did exactly the same thing. Their own uh, leadership voted for this, got unanimous consent, and uh, it, the charter statement was released the day the bill got royal assent. And so our, our friends are looking, and some legal experts are looking now at, at the history of Parliament uh, to see if this kind of thing has ever happened before on a criminal law. Uh, I, I've heard they were trying to do it some, for something like trying to give uh, Nelson Mandela a Canadian honorary Canadian citizenship, which uh, one MP, Rob Anders, voted against. Right, that's the kind of stuff unanimous consent usually gets. But for this to happen, uh, Jonathan, it, it's unprecedented, and uh, frankly, it's technically illegal. Uh, we also know that one of the MPs, Garnet Genius, who is a friend of ours, who we've been working with to to just show the dangers and extremism of this bill, that it actually discriminates against LGBTQ Canadians. Uh, he was actually away in Europe when this bill was voted on to get unanimous consent. So there were a lot of things like that. Many of the MPs, for example, had no idea what the bill was about or how, how this goes going, went on. Literally one MP that I know of, this was her first day in parliament when this happened. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm sad to say some of the MPs did know what was going on, but they said that they were bullied into voting for it on the conservative side, because you have to remember over half the caucus voted our way 
last time under Bill C-6, and now they were forced to vote for it on Bill C-4. Now, some of these MPs, unfortunately, you asked, uh, tried to defend their vote. They still are, saying it's perfectly fine, it's changed, it's much better than before. All of that is, of course, false. So it, it's, it's disappointing, to say the least, about what happened. So uh, one of the, the difficulties with the unanimous vote is it came at the worst possible time, I think, for the Conservatives as well, because a lot of people were already pretty cynical about politicians because two years of COVID and all of people's varying perspectives on that has created all sorts of divisions inside the Conservative base. And then you had this moment where, you know, one of the only moments I can remember since I started following politics, which would have been around 2000, that it would have only taken one person to make all the difference. Like only one person to ensure that all the voices would get heard, that all the deliberations, um, you know, would have occurred. And and we had nobody. Now, when you say that, you know, um, there was one person, it was her first day in parliament. Um, <clears throat> there's only well, a couple of people that applies to. So um, we have a leadership race coming up. And I remember talking to a, a bunch of conservative political activists in the weeks following that vote. And a lot of the MPs had kind of persuaded themselves that this was just going to go away, right? They, they would go to each other's offices. They talk about how terrible they felt, but they'd assume that once they kind of got over it as a, you know, as an unfortunate political necessity, everybody else would move on as well. Um, and I remember saying at the time to one of the ones I was talking to, that's not going to happen because of the fact that ARPA and Free to Care did such a good job explaining in simple terms to so many Christians how dangerous this bill is, that unlike other, like 20 years ago, they could have that could have happened, right? We weren't paying enough attention. It could have sailed through. But now we have all of these organizations who have been communicating to churches, to pastors, to Christians, why this is so incredibly dangerous. What should our response to politics be after Bill C-4? And when you note that it may be illegal and you note that this obviously doesn't jive with the charter, a very simple question I've, I've been asked a lot is, how can they do this and can we stop it in the courts? Well, one of the, the key things that I asked several people in, in the know, in the political world, is if Aaron O'Toole, who was leader at the time, could do this on this issue, what's stopping him from doing this on any other issue where he completely bypassed all the democratic levers where we have inputs, like I said, and, and passed it as if uh, all of the concerns that were raised initially, even by his own members of caucus, were suddenly gone. Like, you, you simply cannot do that with a new bill um, in, in terms of being a representative democracy, and, and they completely bypass that. So in terms of your, your questions there, I think part of what, what happened was many Christians and others realized this is not the way bills should be passed. And I had many people come to us and say, well, what do we do? And we encourage them to contact their members of parliament, just like other Christian groups and other groups um, were requiring, have asked. Uh, their supporters to do, and so what? From my understanding, there was a, a uh, there was quite a few. I would want to say a flood because we don't know exactly the numbers. Uh, people contacting their MPs, expressing their anger, especially at those who should be on our side, especially at those who should have said no and stood up and be brave enough uh, to stand up. And I said, like I said, that's why a few of the MPs at least uh, took their vote back or apologized for what they did. They could have done better, 
Uh, and, and, you know, we have to live with those MPs right now. They're the ones who are there. We can maybe replace those MPs who are defending them, their vote. But that's that's part of it in, in terms of what you said. There's enough of a, a stink that's being made. Uh, and we can see that because of the leadership of the, the change in the Conservative Party. I think there was uh, enough members of parliament afterwards uh, because of this issue and other issues who began to question uh, the leadership of Aaron O'Toole enough to get him defeated and, and replaced. So in, in terms of moving forward, I think that's what we need to start thinking about as well. The the, the challenge we have is we live in a culture, in, in, and this, this really was revealed to me when I was in Ottawa, uh, the, the Laurentian elite is the term that's been used in the past. Of a, It's a cabal of the political leaders, the bureaucrats, and the journalists, and they all think the same. There's hardly anyone who thinks differently from them. It's the same kind of attitude that uh, just Justin Trudeau had when he said, well, I don't want to talk to those truckers. They're just a small fringe minority. That's the kind of mindset that we're dealing with. It's a, the journalist that I talked to told me, because you're pro-life, I don't need to, re to uh, represent you properly or equally on any kind of report because you're such a minority group anyway. And, and this is ver a very dangerous precedent. In fact, Jonathan, I I just saw my alma mater. Again, I'm a journalism graduate from Carleton University. So I have the deg same degree that many of these people have. Right? They, they can't just dismiss Christians and others like me as people who are not um, part of their, their cabal because, well, I'm, I have the same degree. I have come from the same background. And, and I'm not from their cabal, I guess, let me rephrase, but I kind of have the same um, educational status. So, so here's what happens, though. Uh, there is going to be a forum from my university about the threats to journalism from the truck protests or the truck convoy. And from what I read in the, the description, because it's happening, I think, this week, right? I would I'd really like to attend. Uh, they're going to be talking about how some of the truckers were threatening the journalists, how upset they were. They were yelling at the CBC reporters and CTV reporters. And, and don't get me wrong. I don't think that's the way to handle it. I don't think that's wisdom. I don't think that's how we should represent ourselves, especially for Christians. But they're so myopic, Jonathan, that they don't realize that this is the natural result of when the, a media no longer actually does news but makes makes news in their image when they refuse to let people uh, be covered when they refuse to tell other stories not just the ones they agree with the, the the general public who are going are going to be upset just like they were in the states just like with Trump because you refuse to actually tell their stories and you claim to be an unbiased reporter so th this is the frustration and i'm i'm afraid my my colleagues in my professional field are still so myopic they don't understand that democracy requires them to talk to people they don't agree with justin trudeau can make those kinds of claims because he's a political hack and and because he's prime minister who doesn't seem to understand that he's prime minister of all Canadians, including truckers. Uh, but as journalists, they have to be held accountable as well for the fact that they're actually not reporters any longer. They're mouthpieces for this Laurentian elite. Well, it's interesting because our tax dollars now fund the majority of the media. Uh, and, and, and as such, we're paying for, for coverage that treats us with contempt. Like I went up to the convoy to report on it myself because I wanted to write about it. And I saw some of the reporters like from CBC and CTV getting yelled at. 
And the stuff that was being yelled at them was interesting to me. Like one of them said, why won't you cover the real reason I, I, I lost my job? You know, why don't you want to hear our perspective? And I know there were some journalists up there trying to do their job and a huge number was not. And I totally agree with you that what you're having is a media that's treated a lot of ordinary Canadians with contempt for a very long time. And when they found that contempt um, returned to them, they acted like they were getting airdropped into Fallujah at the height of the surge. Right. You know, like the worst thing that they could come up with was was one of them got a beer can chucked at them. Um, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know if they've ever been to a party during at college, but that's not that big of a deal. So well, playing victim in this case makes them the news and they shouldn't be that way. And, <laughs> and uh, frankly, I, uh, as one of many conservative minded Canadians, I've stopped watching Canadian news. It's just so unpalatable uh, to watch because they're so unprofessional in how they cover these stories. Uh, like I said, these, these incidences I've, I've shared, uh, which is why it was interesting, Jonathan, just watching Fox News and American News for the first time covering Canadian news and discovering the kind of dangerous elitism and undemocratic views that are being held by the prime minister as well as the Laurentian elite, uh, it, it really becomes eye-opening to actually watch news that's that's at least given from a conservative or unbiased perspective because it lays out just how many rights we've already lost. And this is this is the the uh, the the passing of Bill C four is the epitome of that, where we actually bypass democratic accountability uh, to pass a law that has a drastic uh, effect on the rights of LGBTQ Canadians and others Canadians truly violating charter rights. Yeah, no, and that's interesting because one of the things um, that I said during the Freedom Convoy is is that I you know I support people standing up for their rights. I think that a lot of these things are very important. However. Um, a couple of pieces of legislation that have passed recently are far, far more important, one of them being the expansion of assisted suicide to those uh, with with mental illness. So basically, um, if you're suicidal, you qualify for, for assisted suicide, which is insane. And then Bill C-4, which actually bans certain forms of pastoral outreach, of pastoral care. And, and this is... Uh, I was encouraged by how many people did speak out and got involved. I was discouraged by how few at the same time, because I do think this is one of the most important pieces of legislation um, uh, impacting Christian liberty that we've seen in Canada in 25 years. And so now that it is law, um, and hopefully it will be challenged, hopefully we have a chance to amend it at some later date, not holding my breath. Um, in the meantime, we have to live with this. And I know you've been giving presentations uh, to pastors and others on, so now how do we deal with the reality uh, of Bill C-4? So walk us through how you think people should respond to this. Well, and that's a good question, John, because even even just responding to this, you know, I could potentially be violating the law. That's how bad this law is, even just commenting on the law and showing people how we can uh, live with it for the time being. Right. As, as you asked earlier, I mean, how do we how do we walk through this? What is it? What advice we give? Well, uh, first things first, we need to remember that the first conversion therapy bans uh, occurred or were passed in 2015 in Ontario under the Wynne government. And then uh, provinces like Nova Scotia, um, uh, the municipal governments of in Calgary and Edmonton and Regina and Saskatoon, the province of Quebec, began passing conversion therapy bans. The, the most recent ones, the ones that were in Alberta, the municipal ones, and the one in Quebec are the worst ones because they're written almost the same way as the federal government's law. 
Um, now, what's, what happened that then is that at least half the population of Canada uh, under all those governments have had a conversion therapy law since a ban since 2015, Jonathan. And there's been not one person who's been charged, let alone convicted under any of these municipal provincial laws. Not one. The, the federal bills exist now for three months. Again, no one has been charged. Now, this is really important because the uh, activists on the other side have said thousands and thousands of uh, Canadians have gone through conversion therapy. They, they claim about 11,000 gay men have, been, have gone through uh, conversion therapy. And they use numbers, by the way, that they, they only interview people uh, who were at gay bars, gay dating websites, and gay activists, advocacy organizations, uh, not people like myself who have actually gone through counseling that's been criminalized and was benefited and benefited from it. And none of us are interviewed, of course. So these numbers are, are inflated at, at the best uh, in, in terms of understanding. So uh, that tells me, and that tells some of our legal friends that I've been talking to, that this bill actually was never meant to be enforced the way we think it is. It's actually created, it's been created as a chill effect, to create a chill effect, to cause fear among counselors and pastors and others to make sure we toe the party line. And so one of the, the, uh, the key lessons as well from this bill is it's, it's complaint-based so someone has to overhear a conversation or hear about, see an advertisement to complain about how this church or body is doing conversion therapy. Now, we know our LGBT activist friends can still do that and make all kinds of claims. They've already done that, in fact, at uh, several venues and with certain people. But so far, there's been no convictions or charges. So that means as churches, we can mitigate or minimize uh, the opportunities for them to do that. So in, pu publicly, this is this is public. So one church in Kingston, Ontario, uh, actually had sermons from the 80s and 90s on their website, Jonathan. And some of these sermons were still using language about homosexuality that was acceptable at that time. It just quickly evolved to not even be acceptable, including things like homosexuality is sinful. Well, certain members of the LGBT activist class uh, and uh, former members of their church, disgruntled members of their church, began to publicly claim that this church was doing conversion therapy and were able to use the, uh, these videos from the past, from the website, from the church's own website as, as an example. And they made all these kinds of allegations to the point where the mayor of Kingston, who used to attend that church, had to resign his membership. And this is all public. So obviously the first step is make sure, just like any good political person nowadays, go to your website, take off things that do not uh, or that you cannot defend in this environment. Make sure that whatever goes on your website is defensible. The other thing, Jonathan, I would say, because it's, a, it's made for a chill effect, you know, <clears throat> Canadians are... Um, survivors of cold weather, we know how to survive in cold weather. We have to think the same way. So in the same way, the chill effect means we, we can't be afraid of the cold. We have to be prepared for it. And organizations that we talk to, including churches, uh, we advise, make sure you write your statement of faith, your code of conduct, so that it, it, it doesn't violate the law, but it also doesn't violate our conscience as Christians, our conscience as Christians, uh, by ensuring that we stand firmly on a biblical truth of sexuality without compromising it, but wording it in a way where we are um, 
legitimately uh, telling people in order to join our organization, you have to agree with our beliefs. Uh, and I think that's a critical distinction. So rather than saying gay people can't come to our church, which shouldn't be the case anyway, right? Everyone should be welcome to church. Yeah. Uh, we have to be able to say, look, you have to agree with our beliefs if you want to become a member of the church, just like any other organization. Uh, I mean, the Pride Parade in Calgary, for example, uh, will not allow certain conservative politicians to march with them unless they agree with their beliefs. Shockingly, which is called freedom of association. And so just like LGBT groups, just like the Pride Parade in Calgary have a right to discriminate based on belief, so do we. We should have a right to say you have to agree with our beliefs if you want to uh, participate in leadership or be a member of our church. You can come and worship with us, but you'll understand you'll hear Christian testimonies and Christian biblical beliefs on all kinds of things if you come. Uh, so that, those are the, some of the pieces of advice that I give, Jonathan. And the most important one, I think, is, is this one. You know, Scripture tells us we should not be afraid. Fear not. And we can't fear uh, an unjust law and self-censor because the law may punish us for telling people the truth they need to hear, or in many cases, the truth they want to hear. Uh, but I've already heard of a large church in Calgary, Jonathan, where the pastor has said, if someone comes to him for help, even one of his own church members asking for help with LGBTQ related issues, he will just refuse to support that person. He will refuse to help. Oh, yeah. And I mean, there, uh, Andre Schutten, one of the people we've been working with with ARPA, shares the story of a church, a Christian church in Canada that invited Nancy Piercy, who wrote this great book called Love Thy Body. It's one of the best books on this topic. And they actually took out paragraphs of her speech. They censored her because of fear of the local conversion therapy ban. Oh, good grief. That's the kind of stuff that the church has to be held accountable for. And that that actually is the kind of stuff that means the other side has won this. We've let the culture dictate to us which parts of the Bible we can actually preach. And that no longer is religious freedom. Yeah, because I think the most likely scenario is the one that happened in Kingston, which is you have somebody who leaves the church, who, who joins the LGBT community, and then essentially weaponizes their past experience to claim under the broad definition of conversion therapy laid out by the liberal government, which intentionally made it as broad as possible. It was like this thing was written by Chris Wells, uh, that he was subject to conversion therapy, even though under no previously historically understood definition would that have been the case? But let me run a few scenarios by you so the listeners kind of get an idea of what we're dealing with in Canada. So you mentioned testimony. Let's say um, a Christian uh, who had been who had been living that lifestyle um, was saved, left that lifestyle, and wanted to stand up and give a testimony of how his life had changed in church. Would that be legal or illegal under the conversion therapy ban? That would be legal for now, but it's 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 uh, on the fringes of it because as soon as he or she says something like, and you can get the same kind of support on our website <clears throat> or on, if you call this number, that is now promoting conversion therapy and you can go to jail for two years. 
So if somebody is struggling with unwanted same-sex attraction, uh, and I know quite a, quite a few of them, I'm sure you do too, uh, and where where are they able to go now under this new law? Because I think uh, when you say chilling effect, that's that's precisely the case, is that there's a lot of people who just don't know what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do, and they're also just not sure where to go for help. So if a, a young person with same-sex uh, attraction came to you um, and, and asked you where to go, and 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 you're breaking the law, and this is all very secret, etc. What kind of advice would you give them? What could they do? Well, that's a good good advice. Actually, just uh, it was a week or so, Jonathan, after Calgary passed a conversion therapy ban, that I got a call from a mom whose autistic son was being encouraged to wear a dress and act like a woman in school. And and I helped. I, I I went right away. I thankfully I knew the family well enough to know this wasn't an entrapment. But I have to tell you, there was a few moments there where I thought, did they have they changed their mind? Have they are they setting me up for this? Uh, and and I was I, I had I had to be very concerned. But but then you know I realized if we are not willing to take the risk to help young people, particularly who are seeking help. Uh, what's the use of being a Christian ministry, right? These people have come to us for help uh, and we should be available. We should be of all people be the most available. So in terms of advice for young people, it depends where they are. So if someone is coming to me for advice, one of the first things we should always do is thank them for trusting us with this very deep uh, piece of information on their lives. Often they've thought through, this is what I did, thought through uh, very deeply and pray very uh, much on who to talk to first. And and this bill would actually prevent us as Christians from sharing the very Christian faith that these young people and others are asking us to support them in. I mean, these, this, like I said, this bill does not care if the, the person is consensual or not. So even someone who asks for help, we can no longer help in the way the Bible tells us to, according to this bill, because it prevents us from helping them reduce their non-heterosexual attractions or behavior or non-cisgender gender identity. So someone who comes and says, I, I feel like a, I'm a woman, even though I'm, bi I bio I'm a biological male, any kind of counseling you provide that would reduce that feeling would be a violation of the conversion therapy ban, right? So and that, that's uh, I, just to help listeners understand how insane that is. It's it's such a non-starter. If a man like you or a man like me said, "I feel like a woman," uh, it would be such a pointless statement because how could we possibly know what a woman feels like? Right. Like I always feel like it's such like the argument doesn't even get off the ground because you know I went through a puberty as a male. I don't understand a female experience. My wife is pregnant right now. Um, I don't understand most of what she's going through, except as an observer and somebody who, <clears throat> who try who tries to mitigate the discomfort here and there. But the idea that a man can say, I feel like a woman and be taken seriously just shows how nuts we've gotten. Well, part of it, Jonathan, is is this the argument is we 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 can no longer rely on gender stereotypes. We can no longer say that gender is static, it's fluid. Those are the kind of arguments that make the foundation for this ideology. And it is an ideology. It's not just a transgender feelings that people have. This is a worldview that we're dealing with. And in terms of that, it's, it's self-defeating because if gender is fluid, why is the person who wants to transition transitioning into the other gender using the gender stereotype of the other gender. <laughs> yeah. 
So that means a man who feels like a woman is feels like a woman because he wants to wear a dress because he he feels he needs to wear makeup. He feels like he needs to express himself as a female. What well, you're using all the gender stereotypes of female when you do that. The pre and, the pre-feminism gender stereotypes because basically right. it's like I want to dress like a 1950s pinup advertisement that the <laughs> feminists would have hated and therefore I'm a woman now. Right. And, and, you know, maybe want is the wrong word. I should correct myself. But the point is the desire to identify as female relies on if you're a male, biological male relies on how you does feel about being able to identify with a stereotype, the opposite sex stereotype. And, and I, I've done this. This is an interesting question to ask you. And I encourage your, your, your listeners to think about this. When I talk to uh, uh, LGBT activists, I've done this with at least five of them. I ask them, and, and this, is, this is a question I think that uh, it should be a fair question. What role should biology play in determining your gender? What role should biology play in determining your gender? And out of the five, three of them said it should play no role. Don't Just think, think about that. Seriously. So if biology should play no role in determining your gender, then what is gender? It's completely what you make up in your head. And as, as my friend Walt Heyer, who lived as a woman, he's a man, biological male, but lived as a woman for almost 10 years, said when he did live as a woman, as you said, he could never think like a woman. All he did was copy what he thought women did. Mm -hmm. And and the reason why he runs a website now called sexchangeregret.com is because he's helping people who realize that the gender transition did not solve their gender dysphoria. When they tried to live as the opposite gender, whether it's through operations or dressing or, or whatever reason, they could not get rid of that disconnect with their own body because it's still going to be there. And, and it really is, from a Christian perspective, the, the whole concept of God's design for you as male or female, that God made you in his image as male or female. And that's a very unique Judeo-Christian teaching that both men and women are made in the image of God. Um, it's only by embracing that identity. And only in, in being able to say, in, to integrate your biology with how you think, that's when your gender dysphoria is healed. I mean, that's actually technically the term because you're now no longer dysphoric. The, the, um, the challenge now is the psychological associations and others have said that dysphoria is the problem, but the solution can be to change your body, not your, your feelings of disconnect with your body. Whereas traditionally, the, the solution has been to integrate that, to accept your biological identity. And one of the, the things we teach churches, and this is what's key back to your question on conversion therapy, Jonathan, is uh, because we have to be concerned about former members being disgruntled and using this law against us, weaponizing this law against us, it is now more than ever critical for churches to teach their congregations a biblical view of sexuality and gender, where the congregation trusts God's word as true and good. In other words, they need to see the moral goodness of God's teaching on sexuality, on the moral goodness of God's teaching on marriage, the moral goodness of God's teaching on how we view our gender. And one of the points we make uh, in them is that in our culture, we teach uh, somehow that if we don't feel like a boy, if we don't feel like a girl, say you're a tomboy who's a girl, but does boyish things as a child, you're now being encouraged by many to become a boy. 
And and I've seen many feminist memes actually speaking out against this, saying, hey, I can be a tomboy and still be a girl. And, and they're actually right on this. In other words, we as Christians need to teach that we ought to expand our cultural definition of boy to include every boy and our cultural definition of girl to include every girl. So even if you're a boy who doesn't like sports, you're more academic or you're more uh, technical, you, you're, you're a nerd, you like computers, you know, that doesn't make you any less masculine. It just means you're expressing your masculinity in a different kind of way. And, and that's part of God's design for us to be able to identify with men, to be able to say, that's who I am. I, I think I might have mentioned this before, and I think that's critical for, for those people who have never experienced same-sex attraction. Uh, those of us who do uh, experience what, what a lot of uh, culturally uh, people think um, is not just simply being attracted to someone of the same sex. What I mean by that is same-sex attraction in the minds of people who experience it are attracted to what they perceive as different from them. That, that's why sexually, even from a Darwinian perspective, right, <clears throat> animals are designed or evolve uh, to be able to attract the members of the opposite sex. It's the reason why peacocks have tails and peahens don't, or lions have manes and lionesses don't because they are there to attract the opposite, right? And humans have what's called sexual dimorphism, which means that males and females are different. And so our bodies are designed to attract the opposite because sexual reproduction requires the, the two pair, the two opposites to come together in order to reproduce, right? Again, that's just biology. That's not even from, uh, from a, you don't have to believe the Bible to believe that. So why does homosexuality exist in humans? Is because for some reason we perceive that what we're attracted to is the opposite to us or is not like us. And, and when we, we, we think of it that way, the problem with same-sex attraction then, and, and this is where the church made a mistake, was what they, they tried to fix a symptom, which is the attraction, when in fact the problem was always self-perception how we perceive ourselves. So for example, and just to give, give, uh, give, give examples with many lesbian couples, uh, traditionally there was a butch uh, characteristic and a femme characteristic where the partners would embrace these identities, even though they're both women. Right. right. So there's an opposite there, even though they're both biologically female, they still fill these roles uh, with with men. And uh, there there is all kinds of things like age differences where there's a father figure and a son figure that's become sexualized or even racial differences so that people who are a different race are perceived as more masculine or as different from the person and therefore is becoming sexually attractive to that person. And, and you don't have to take my word for it. You can talk to people but, but who have these attractions and ask them to describe what they're sexually attracted to. And the way they talk, especially with gay men, is, is a way where they talk about other men as if they don't belong in the category men. And, and it becomes very obvious when you have these kinds of conversations. Um, and and as, as a Christian church, I think we need to see this and understand this is, this is where we can minister because this is obviously based on a false understanding of oneself. The way I've described it in the past, I think, is if you imagine same uh, sexuality or gender as a, two swimming pools beside each other, one male pool and one female pool. And um, all the men are in one pool, all the women are the other. If you're transgender, 
for some reason you feel like you belong in the other pool of the other gender. Like uh, Walt Tyra mentioned earlier when he was about three years old was being dressed by his grandmother in a, a woman's dress. And as a child, he, he got all this positive reinforcement to see how, how good he was as a child, as a girl. And so as he grew up, he felt that positive reinforcement wearing dresses. And that's why he wanted to do that. That's why he felt he needed to do that. If you're same-sex attracted, uh, you feel like you belong in neither swimming pool because you know you're not the opposite gender, but you don't feel like you belong in your own gender. So you're, you're on the outside looking in, trying to figure out who you are. So no wonder when the LGBTQ community comes to you and offers you a new community, now you have a, something to belong to and you felt excluded all your life. So, so if you think about the psychology behind that, and I, there, I can send references, we can talk about this more for your listeners if they want to contact me. Uh, but, but, but in terms of understanding and talking to those young people, Jonathan, that's one of the key things that I, I, I come back to. Because it's the, the, like with my counselor, when I talked to him, he was trying to deal with my attractions and not deal with my self-perception. And it's only been able, because I've been able to understand this, that I've been able to say, no, the, the, the men that I'm attracted to, they're no, no different than I am. And if I can see that, then actually what's happened is those attractions begin to disappear. And, and I think uh, we have a, a natural tendency to not be attracted, sexually attracted to our own body, right? Because obviously, why, what's the purpose of sexuality if you're only attracted to yourself? The, there's no reproduction that comes with that. Right. So there's no biological purpose for that. And, and so I, I think once you once you think about it this way, then the challenge we have with these kinds of conversion therapy laws is they actually formalize sexual orientations as if they're immutable things that will never change that define you for the rest of your life. When in fact, we already know that's the, not the case. Even the own Justice Department's uh, research on this said that there are many people who are sexually fluid who have an opportunity to, to move around and may, may be questioning. Right now, according to studies, we have numbers as high as 56% of uh, Generation Z, that's 25 years old and younger, identify with the LGBT community of some sort. And that's because they've been taught, taught since they were kids, if you have any kind of love or attraction to someone of the same sex, you must be gay. Right. And, and that itself also is a lie because there is a natural need for same-sex intimacy. And it's a good need. It's a God-designed need, in fact. But it's not a sexual need. It's a friendship need. And those, those loves are actually ones that are different from each other because we're different. Men and women are different. Therefore, we love and befriend people differently. So all of these things, I think we as the church can address, we can, we can focus on the need for intimacy, the need to be, to have an integrated whole. All of those things, uh, I think are, are ones where we can point out to uh, that, that once healed will actually help change the way you think about sexuality and your attractions to people of the same sex. And, and I think here's, here's the last point, John, I know it's a long winded answer to your question, but the whole concept of sexual orientation is itself the social construct. It, the word heterosexual, and we might've mentioned this in previous podcasts, the word heterosexual prior to the 1860s was actually a word used to reference people who are promiscuous with these opposite sex. They were players, 
right? But the word homosexual was coined in Germany by LGBTQ activists trying to fight a law that had criminalized homosexuality. And the way they wanted to fight it was by creating these two immutable sexual identities, heterosexual and homosexual, and saying these identities are what defines you. It defines who you are. It, it's a foundational identity, just like your skin color or your religion uh, or your nationality. The problem was this is all made up. Uh, prior to this time period, uh, people could engage and did engage in all kinds of sexual activities, but no one was labeled a certain kind of way until this point. And this had massive implications to how people behaved, how people interacted, particularly how men socialized in the West, because we no, we no longer wanted to uh, publicly show any kind of affection to each other, which was very common. You can look at pictures from the 1800s and even all the way to the late 19, early 1900s, uh, where men would pose with their best friends in pictures. And I, I, these pictures were very expensive. They're not like our phones today. We can take pictures of anything. Uh, these are very expensive. They had to pay for them and, and they have their hands around each other. They had they're holding hands or sitting on each other's laps. But there was no hint at all that there was a, a gay relationship. It was just friends. Uh, and in fact, we even knew and you're, you're a student of history. Abraham Lincoln uh, lived with and slept in the same bed as his best friend. Uh, when they were both in law school and he even wrote love letters to his best friend when he and his his future wife had a fight he actually lived with him for over the summer uh, but but this sense of intimacy was not sexual there was no hint at all that it was sexual we want to reinterpret that many lgbt activists today interpret that as gay because they can't perceive of any other kind of uh, same-sex intimacy that isn't sexual Th that's the brokenness that we're dealing with yeah so for those who want more information on this, um, I know you just did presentations in Ontario. Uh, where can they find your work on this? And um, is there a rumor going around that you're eventually going to write a book on this? <laughs> yeah, I've been I've been rumoring that for a while, but. Actually, one of the first things that you, they should do is we're actually hosting our Be Ready conference, which is April 29th and 30th. Uh, in Calgary. But if you go to our website, faithbeyondbelief.ca, faithbeyondbelief.ca, uh, you can find and register there. You can have a watch party, which is your local church can host a video uh, streaming of it. I'll be actually sharing my testimony at that conference, Jonathan. And uh, my, my, my talk is titled, Can We Still Share Jesus with the LGBTQ Community in Canada? Mm. And so I'll be talking about that, going through some of these points again. I'm also speaking in Ottawa at the Dig and Delve conference, April 1st uh, and 2nd. So if you're around there, there's a couple of these concepts like the nature of love and, and how God designed us with four love needs that I'll be speaking at that conference. You can look up Dig and Delve in Ottawa, Dig and Delve, I think, .ca, but just double check. Uh, but uh, the main uh, resource right now is, uh, is our identity project where we go through all of these concepts identityproject.ca that's also on our faithbeyondbelief.ca website so check that out it's about 12 weeks where we have 13 weeks there but it's going to be 12 sessions that you can take and teach to your small group or bible study group where we cover these concepts in a comprehensive way and show that the sec the worldview that we have as christians has something to say about sexuality not just homosexuality but pornography singleness marriage what is male and female those are really important concepts and what I, I think is critical is it's it's part of a package you're not just learning it in isolation 
And, and, and as Christians, I think this is what has to happen in your churches to protect yourself from future attacks or calls or whatever from people who wish you ill. And, and we have to start seeing it that way. We have to be always careful, always caring, but also very much aware of, of, of what the risks are when we go out and help people, understanding that we still ought to go help people. Right. Right. Well, Jojo, um, thank you so much for joining us again. I think this is your third time um, mm. and, and I'm really enjoying it. So thank you for all your wisdom on this subject. And, uh, and we encourage everybody to check out your talks and head over to Faith Beyond Belief to, to see your work there. Yeah, and on one more thing, Jonathan, I will mention freetocare.ca. Freetocare.ca is the new organization we started to fight the law. We've actually uh, create, recreated none of the laws passed as a way for people to be able to get education. So I've partnered with other speakers to create sort of like a speakers bureau, where if your church needs an expert on um, counseling, we have a former psychotherapist who's joining us. She's, re she's retired. Uh, we have a professor. We have a pastor. So we can provide all kinds of resources for your church or organization or for you to help you navigate through these issues. And I, I can tell you, and it's not... Um, it's not a, an embarrassment or a shame. Almost every other week now, we get phone calls, we get emails from parents or young people asking, how do I handle this issue? What do I do now that I'm struggling with this? Uh, please don't be afraid to come to us. That's why we exist. We're glad to provide that support. Uh, whatever the law is, I want you to know that the law does not punish people like us who look for support. So that's really important. You don't go to jail just because you're looking for help. But it's it's critical that you do look for help and that the church be available to you to provide that help. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Jojo Ruba of Faith Beyond Belief and Free to Care. Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you want to check out past interviews, including on this subject, head over to lifesightnews.com, click on the podcast tab. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you download your podcast content. Again, thank you so much for giving us your time this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.